Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to Science of Futurism with Isaac Arthur's monthly livestream Q&A. As usual, we'll be taking your questions live from the audience, as uh, given to us by our moderators and by my lovely wife and assistant, Sarah. <laughs> uh, before we get started, I just want to give everyone the quick announcement uh, that we are probably going to be skipping the Thanksgiving live stream at this point in time. That's kind of a guess, that's not guaranteed at the moment, but we should be having this one, next one, and then our January 30, sorry, December 31st, we're right at the very end of the year. But maybe not one for Thanksgiving yet, that's not quite decided. Uh, do we have any questions to get started? We do actually have a question from Christian Carello, Super Chat for ninety nine. Thank you, Christian. Would an Orion Drive spaceship require large radiators like other spacecraft? And what's the best method for decelerating and steering such a spacecraft? Hmm. Uh, for decelerating, we usually assume you're going to use the exact same thing. In fact, the general idea with the Orion Drive is that you might be able to accelerate using something like a beam from in-system to get you up to speed and then use the Orion Drive to slow down is another one of our options. Uh, or you might use a variation of an Orion Drive that strips matter out the back from an energy beam uh, as opposed to having nuclear bombs on board. But either way, you can use the nuclear bombs pushing the ship to slow it down to, or to steer it. In terms of actually changing your direction with an Orion Drive, that is a little bit trickier because we usually assume a very flat plate which means you'd have to start pushing the bombs off from a bit of an angle. Now you could just detonate them behind you and to the right a little, or behind you and the left a little bit, but you're going to lose a fair amount there. That's a lot of times why I tend to suggest using something more like a parabolic dish for that, just because it gives you a bit more turning power. And of course, the thing is, you could have multiple um, sailors or pusher plates you put on the back of a ship like that, where you just went out EVA and uh, switched them around, you know, and during the course of the trip. Um, Always happened when it came running down the length of the body of the ship. For those who don't know, since it might be confusing, an Orion Drive is our big interstellar ship design that we actually can make work right now uh, that uses big nuclear bombs behind the ship to push the ship up to speed and get somewhere between a little under 1% to maybe as high as 5% of light speed. So it makes it possible to get a ship to some place like Alpha Centauri, if not necessarily in a human lifetime, then inside generational time spans where it's not insanely long. Um, and then the question was whether or not you need heat radiators. And that's the thing that gets people about spaceships is we always think of it as so cold in space, but space is usually hotter than, say, Earth, um, because all it is doing is absorbing sunlight all day long out here, for instance. It's very thin. It's so thin you could freeze to death in it if that was always keeping you warm and you were in shadow. But uh, it's very hot overall in terms of raw temperature. Heat and temperature being different, you need to radiate that out from your ship and the only way you can is by photons or infrared radiation. So you need to put really big, really big photons, uh, really big radios on the side of the ship, and uh, that way that can get rid of the heat. But you do need those for anything that you're doing with it, because if you're blowing off gamma radiation bombs behind you, we can't really reflect gamma rays right now. So what's getting absorbed, uh, those gamma, those x-rays, is being absorbed as heat in a lot of cases. A lot that's going to blow off as a blade of steam on the back or vapor, uh, but not all of it, and that's going to be heat that goes up that pump. So yes, you do need radiators on an Orion Drive, you need them on every other type of spaceship basically too, and you might need them so big that you might as well have something the size of a solar sail, uh, in some cases, just to get the energy collected on them. So 
interesting hybrid options you might get for those. Oento E says, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Arthur, profuse thanks for your Warping Reality episode. It answered a lot of questions for me. I now understand that physical constants in reality probably can't be changed. Um, well, yeah, that's that was always that one we'd like to be able to do uh, to change would be um, what if we could change the physical constant, what if we could change the speed of light. Um, you know, one of the things we don't tend to think about is that almost all the helium and hydrogen in the stars we look at say, oh, well, helium is what they make as they burn, and that's true. But most of the helium in our sun has been there since the Big Bang. It, it didn't start off as hydrogen turned to helium in our sun. Only a couple percent of that is, is from, you know, the sun doing that. Um, in the first minute of the Big Bang, space was so dense that it wasn't just like the interior of a star where fusion happens to an atom maybe once in a billion years. It was like the core of a supernova. And in that very brief period of time, uh, something like a twelfth of the available protons uh, collided, turned to neutrons, and turned into helium. Um, had that gone on at that density for even uh, no, another second, uh, or just a higher amount just by that much, you might not have had anything other than helium left over in the universe by then. Very different kind of lookout, which is why I see the physical constants really matter for um, you know, whether or not you could have life in the universe at all. And you get the same things like if the speed of light would increase, or um, if Planck's constant were to increase too. So. Fascinating topic we need to cover at some point in time, but yes, we cannot change physical constants, but we could do some cool things we could. I think I have an episode on that coming up. Thank you, Dara Cloak, for your super chat as well. Did you ever think aliens built a Dyson Swarm around Tabby's star? Um, that's a tricky one. I refused to do an episode on that for like the first six or seven months, then finally I, I broke down and did one on it because people kept asking. And I'd always said by then I didn't think it was one, but... I think I mentioned at the time, the first thought through my head when I heard about that was, I wonder if that could be a Dyson Swarm. And I said, eh, probably not for these reasons. So um, that was one of those examples I use of how people are saying, I wish people wouldn't say it all the time it's aliens, scientists never think it's aliens. And in practice, it is almost the first thing we all think about is, could this new phenomenon be a sign of uh, either an error or alien life? And then you think of all the reasons why it probably isn't and move on. And I never thought Tabby Star could be a Dyson Swarm but it did pop in my head quickly. We have a question from Miami's Last Capitalist, who is a longtime supporter of the program. Thank you. From Reddit, if a spin bull hab can increase felt gravity to a low gravity moon, can it be used to reduce felt gravity? Could people living on a high G planet feel only one G? And if not, are there other methods? Uh, there are other methods for that. You could do the, I think we did the low gravity train the one time. Uh, where you put a train around the equator of a planet in a, in a vacuum tunnel, like a hyperloop as it were, only even lower pressure, and you just have that train running a loop around there. It would be a very big train, say the size of a small city, and it's just running around, it's a big belt, and that's the area that has low gravity because it's going up. Right? Um, you can do the same thing on orbital rings, for instance, to let you have a little bit of additional acceleration without upsetting the crew as you speed people up to launch them into space faster. But... Um, you cannot exactly use that trick because it's adding gravity. So you think, well, if I, if I flipped it upside down, you know, if I could get to add gravity this way to the outside, surely I could do it the other way. And unfortunately, no, that's not going to be how it works. You can only add more gravity with spin. Uh, but you can decrease it by the big centrifugal one around the entire planet uh, or by hanging, say, a, a micro black hole overhead. So you could do that. I think we talked about that in the original tailforming techniques episode. Um, you might have a city on a high-gravity planet, a little mining outpost, over which you suspended a gigantic ball, you know, ball of osmium or some other hyperdense material or a black hole. 
question. Uh, we have a comment here from Pakiti Sa. Is it possible, as many think, that we will have an AI assistant in five to ten years <laughs> that would have enough power to become a companion or a friend, and how do you think that would change society? Um, I, it's it's going to be your mileage going to vary. Uh, Chat GPT is obviously a lot better than what we had in, say, video games in the 90s. But I had characters like playing video games, just the old, really simple response ones. Uh, your little characters look like Dragon Quest or some other game where it's just pre-made text. You can still actually feel kind of an affinity to them. Kind of so you can feel towards a cat or a dog and you never have conversations with your cat or dog. I hope uh, you don't have conversations with your cat or dog. I talk to my cat a lot, but I know it's a one-sided conversation. Um, he responds, but the thing is, you don't necessarily. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he talks to you quite a lot when he wants treats. He wants treats. That's the key, though. Yes. <laughs> I know what my cat is saying. It's not that I can't understand cat speak. I, I hear it just fine. It's just that it's not that complicated. Open this door now. Feed me. I would like to sit there. Hello. It, it's not complicated. Um, but I completely forgot what the question was now. How will that change society? Oh, yeah. Um,. You know, it's, it's really popular to suggest that somewhere down the road you can have virtual reality or robots so good that you will just have an Android companion or a virtual reality companion instead of other humans. And that's possible. You know, that, that could actually get to be fairly normal, too. Um, and that could either be incredibly dystopian or just be the same as having an imaginary friend who's a little bit more realistic and potentially sane. You know, it's the question, I guess, is, is your imaginary friend or your virtual friend encouraging you towards good behavior or is it suggesting you should burn the house down? If it's that kind of imaginary friend, it needs to be removed. If it's the one that just suggests you have good behavior and manners, it might be a very good educational tool for kids. And also, it could be very handy for people just to feel that they have someone to talk to. You know, we think robo-psychology might be preferable in some cases because you're not going to feel as hesitant to tell the robot uh, what your problems are. But, um, so that could be a, a genuine replacement of our 10 years. The text there. And again, it's what's your level of suspension of disbelief? Uh, because if you don't mind that it's fake, you just want to have something to talk to, same as chatting with a bartender in an MMORPG, then it's fine. And they're going to get more sophisticated. So I also would assume in the next five or 10 years that almost all customer service you talk to will be a robot. <laughs> so, it already kind of it, is. It's already kind of like Which has led yeah. to a kind of dismal... Uh, response on customer service side of things. <laughs> Scooter GSP. Other than drones, what types of weapons and devices common to sci-fi will be the first to be developed? <coughs> well, Sorry. well, she's she ready to rephrase that one. No, um, I, I was choking on allergies. <laughs> it's ragweed season. Can I continue? Style. And adopted by militaries in a major way. There's the question. I'm going to need you to repeat that question. <laughs> Other than drones, what types of weapons and devices common to sci-fi will be the first to be developed and adopted by militaries in a major way? Um, <coughs> you know, I'm only half-jokingly customer service AI. Um, because, and this is a, the big one there is, um, if I can, if you ever worked customer service, and I did for a little while when I was in college, uh, it's a horrible job at times. Whereas an AI is very good for that. And you can then resolve like that, you know, you have... 10 AI talking people and one that's resolved human who's expert at their field or whatever it is who gets paid better, who you can bring on once the AI said, this is outside my pay grade, let me put you on with my supervisor. Um, and with the military, there's a lot of that kind of situation too is, and we'll talk about this a little bit in Fortress Wars next month, next, next month. Um, if 
you are trying to golden outpost. You have to have people watching it all the time, and you cannot pay attention all the time. You know, there's this um, video that made around a psychological experiment not that long ago where uh, they've got some goals passing basketballs back and forth on screen. they got two basketballs, and they tell you, pay attention and count how many times they pass the ball. So your brain's trying to count how many times do you, this ball has gotten passed back and forth. And I'm standing there looking at this thing, and, you know, I trained observer, military, all that stuff. I never even noticed, as they were passing the ball and I was trying to count it, that a gorilla walks across the screen. It just walks across the screen, you don't even see it. And then afterwards they say, well, if you count the gorilla, did you catch anything else? They changed the color of the curtains that people were standing behind, when the players went up and left, you're just not paying attention. That's a, a guard who's actually on point, paying attention, can still miss stuff like that. Now, if you've ever been on guard ship before, which everyone in the military usually has had the fun pleasure of many times, you can pay attention for maybe 20 or 30 minutes before you start zoning out a bit. And that's why you always have two people on guard at once, because you can help each other stay awake and pay attention and be less likely to miss things. AI is great for something like that, though, because it can be helping you to find things, but you're scanning out for abnormalities. So, <coughs> kind of same for drones. You're going to have a lot of surveillance attached to those drones or to those cameras that is AI that's busy looking at things and scanning things. And you would never want to rely just on that. That's where you get that human-machine teamy aspect. Um, when they are not able to catch things or the stuff that you, they might miss, you catch that. And it's easier for you to do that because you're not completely zoned out trying to stay on the same patch of the desert for five hours a time. We have a super chat from Andre Jones. Thank you, Andre. I'm 40 years old and I'm going back to college without a prior degree. I'm going for my bachelor's in physics. I had attended school for a while, but I didn't graduate. What advice can you give me? Um, you know, I got a GED too. That's one of the things people don't know as often. Not that it's a secret, but I dropped out of school when I was 12. And I got my GED a few years later and started college. Um, so that doesn't need to be any kind of ball at all. If you didn't finish up high school, don't even give that a second thought. Um, if you want to go to school for anything at all, go ahead and do it. But begin by deciding, first of all, you know, it always helps to have a higher IQ intelligence to go any field, especially STEM. Um, but if you are willing to devote the time to it, yeah, why not? And if you're 40 and you want to change careers, this is not the 1950s or 60s where you're expected to work at a factory your whole life. Uh, I don't know if that was ever really the norm in civilization outside of when all of us were farmers for the most part anyway. If you want to change careers when you're 40, go for it. You know, I, I started this show nine years ago. It was not meant to be a career in any way uh, until maybe six years ago it became a job and I thought it'd be gone in a couple of weeks, years anyway. Now I'm kind of settling in the idea that this might be basically what I do for my life. And I love the idea, but I promise you that I was not expecting this to be the case ten years ago or nine years ago when the show started for that matter, let alone back when I was in the military and decided I didn't want to do that as a career anymore. So, yes, absolutely. Um, if you are 40 and you decide you want to change your major, so to speak, now, absolutely, yeah, why not? Go do something you actually love doing. Um, think of the first 20 years of your life, especially the first 10 of your adulthood, in your 20s and early 30s, as almost a warm-up and experience grabbing thing. Uh, you can use that to convert into almost anything else you want once you now know what it is that you're good at and what you'd like to focus on. Absolutely. And good luck. Hello, Arthur family. How long before the um, matter ammo weapons become economically viable compared to, say, energy weapons? Was it, what was it again? Matter ammo weapons. Matter antimatter weapons or matter ammo weapons? Well, it said ammo. Hmm. Uh, how long have we have antimatter weapons? We'll go with that because that was one of the shorts for earlier this week, which, by the way, I know folks were asking. I will put out a compilation of like 20 at a time after they're a few months old in a while. 
But uh, I know some people don't really like to watch the shorts, and it would be fun to watch them as a compilation. Um, I would not expect antimatter-based ballistic weapons, like we talked about that, that shorts, antimatter rifles, to ever really be uh, the common norm, just because uh, norm, just because um, I don't think we're ever going to find some way to really cheaply produce antimatter that easily. But you do have a lot of ways you might get really compact energy, and that's the biggest driving factor is you can upscale defensive technology with offensive technology as long as you're upscaling how you're producing that energy. One of the issues with something like nuclear weapons, for instance, there's no way to take a nuclear bomb and use it strictly for defensive purposes in a tactical sense. Obviously, strategically, they are mostly a defensive weapon. Um, kind of the same thing for anti-metal-based weapons as opposed to energy or metal-based weapons like, say, a railgun is how do I convert all this energy into something pushing the bullet that fast. Uh, something people don't tend to know, but gunpowder is very low energy density, so is TNT. They are not high energy density compared to, say, gasoline or even human fat cells. Right? They, they are not that energy intensive. What they have going for them is they convert into something else really, really quick, unless you can use them for pushing something down a barrel that's not a mile long. So uh, storage and production, and, and that's what it is. If you find a fate to produce energy much more intensively and store it much more intensively, Antimatter, otherwise, that absolutely converts into weapon systems at that point. Andrew Murray would like to know what intriguing scientific concepts, speculations, or theories you feel are unduly overlooked, ignored, or underrepresented in the present science fiction and would make for some awesome stories if properly adapted. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, we have a lot of those that, that we do talk about in episodes. Usually, if you hear me going off in a narrative in one of the episodes, it is because I felt like people have not put up in sci fi. Because otherwise, if someone's already been a big narrative on it, I would just recommend you that book, uh, since that person will usually have written it far better than whatever I put together. Um, concepts that need to be in a lot more, and we have looked at these a lot, is kind of what the first episode was about. Uh, are all those mega structures in space? They are getting there, though. Now that special effects is catching up, now that the ideas are catching on more, you do see people putting a lot more mega structures into science fiction. I could appreciate it being a little bit more realistic in how they did it. The uh, the hollow earth on the moon, some of the biggest structures in that. Um, oh, I forgot what that movie was called. It was horrible, so that's okay. Uh, it was about the moon hitting the planet. It came out last year. Uh, they had great special effects on that, but horrible plot. Um, I would also like to see a big move away from using time travel. I hate time travel in in science fiction. It's just like a narrative destroying device. But. We don't see much on cloning, other than it's kind of like a bad guy thing if you were to clone or duplicate somebody. Almost any time we talk about mind uploading, uh, it's usually to imply someone's gone completely insane, um, and it's not good. I'd like to see more of that represented in fiction in a realistic and sober way. You know, not just like, oh, well, this is good after all, but not to, you know, don't pen swing it the other way. was like, well, here it's evil, and now we're going to portray it as good. Just give a sober, honest look at the pros and cons of it, which I guess is kind of what we do on the show, but... I think a lot of that's missing from science fiction is to take a topic matter like that and then try to look at the ups and downs of it. And we see a lot of recycled material instead. And I love my space opera too, but it is nice to see some new concepts being put in there. Owen Bowen says, can you use a tiny black hole to make gravity on a moon with low gravity? Um, I'm sorry, one more time? A tiny black hole yep. to make gravity on a moon with low gravity. Yep. Uh, one of next, well, I guess it will be next week's poll episodes, uh, is going to be, can we terraform the moon? And uh, one of the suggested ways you would do that is with a black hole. You don't absolutely need to do that, but you can stick one in the core. Um, 
the first time I came across that idea was actually in Alastair Reynolds' novel House of Sons, which did deal with cloning. Uh, and if I've never recommended Alastair Reynolds to you personally before, go go read his books; they're amazing. But uh, in House of Sons, they have asteroids and the uh, and the asteroid belt, so called three thousand AD. The people have his houses on, so someone's put a black hole in the, in the middle of that asteroid and raised its gravity up to something they couldn't stand on, and uh, presumably feeding in something like hydrogen or helium which would be a very energy-intensive process and a great way to power the place, too. But you can absolutely do that if you can find a way to make micro-black holes and bigger ones of that. So the biggest problem I'd have there is you'd, you'd have to make a minimum-sized black hole that could actually feed hydrogen or helium, uh, which would be a, at least the size of an atom, I think, realistically. And the only way to make something like that would probably be to ram two really skinny, long tungsten or ion threads into each other at like 99.9% of light speed but it should be doable in theory <laughs> Eldegusto says could you in theory make a monopole if you could hide half the polarity via shutting it off through a wormhole or another dimension um, it depends on what kind of wormhole it is if we're just talking about like the classic sci-fi portal where you stick your hand through and then your computer goes on the other side yes then you can uh, wormholes in in the Einstein-Rosen bridge wormhole that we all know from sci-fi, the one they always talk about is the realistic wormhole, uh, which they would then call something but then not actually describe properly, that doesn't really let you pull tricks like that off. So you take an Einstein-Rosen bridge wormhole and you drop something down the mouth of it, and it falls down, it falls in the bottom, the bottom you got a portal here and a portal up here. So the coin falls down through here, pops back up up here, goes back down, keeps doing that over and over again, builds up speed, right? It should be building up speed under gravity, uh, especially if you move the air that was in the way of it. You could use that as a perpetual motion generator, except if you actually follow the forces and the calculations on that, you'll see it will not do any such thing. And that's a thing to keep in mind with wormholes is they are not the magic portal that we often portray them as. Um, they're just a shortcut. They don't actually, you wouldn't be accelerating more from doing that. Um, and so it does depend on how you're going to be doing that. For a monopole, anytime you can actually play around the dimensionality of space, you would have a chance to potentially to make one, but it's very iffy. There's other things you could do with that. We have that episode, Warping Reality, that talks about that a little bit. We have another one of reality manipulation coming up in a couple months that we're looking at more. Do you think that the automated repair of both infrastructure and consumer goods is practically sensible with current technology? Um, it kind of depends. I think... What you would see when we get just a little bit better with the robots is that you start seeing the robots, you know, uh, sweep or clean inside a store, inside a sidewalk or a city on the road. Can you do an automated snowplow? Um, do you want to? Because it's a snowplow on a truck might run you fifty, sixty thousand dollars for the truck and that uh, and that snowplow, or more for the bigger ones that we use for roads. And you got a lot of maintenance of fuel being burned on that thing. And the question might be, are you really saving much money by putting a robot in there as opposed to just having a person who's a little bit more versatile and can also do things like, you know, get out and shovel a section themselves um, or hook up a chain to pull one of their buddies out of the snow when they get stuck. Um, robots for window cleaners, robots for cleaning pools, houses, that's all coming. It just depends as people figure out how best to do it in a way that's going to be cheap and useful. But don't expect that to suddenly be a huge shift overnight to all sorts of things. When we talk about robots for house maintenance, for instance, it wouldn't be a robot that went inside and fixed your house. It would be a robot that crawled around in there and let you know that this or that board was getting weak, that it detected mold, 
or any number of other things like that, which would make it much easier to spot a problem, know it was there, and then it could just pull up the catalog and say, here's what you should do to fix that, or who's who you should call. I think that's probably the first step of automated maintenance we'd expect to see as diagnostics. Matthew Bowman says, Hi Sarah and co-host Isaac, read The Fallen Empire's Sci-Fi Sunday. Would two empires with faster than light have an expansion rate slower than colonizing due to the need to guard each system before colonizing a new one? Um, that's a hard one to really kind of speculate on. If you're worried that your enemy can get in there uh, without you being able to detect them because they have FTL and you have no FTL detection system other than spaceships that are looking normally, um, then you might want to guard them, but why not just guard them with you know 99% of your population and send... 1% on the colony ship to go get the next planet and build up there. In terms of exponential growth, whenever you're dealing with exponential growth into untapped resources, it, it usually almost always makes sense to devote a large portion of resources to that growth. Um, once you start bumping into each other, that changes though. You need to spend more on defensive measures. It starts getting to be more of a pain to actually colonize because you have uh, you know, diplomatic incidences, hassles, competition, things like that. And those are what tend to flatten exponential growth curves, and we see that in nature, for instance. Um, but with FTL expansion fronts, it's all about how does that, how does that actually, ha what's the source of FTL there? If it's a random wormhole I can pop open to any other place in the universe, um, is that a wormhole I maintain, or do I lose my colonies when I send them through? Are they actually being placed inside a different universe or a different piece of the multiverse? Um, is it? in an expanding sphere, which is where those things pop out. It, it's just too dependent on the technology itself. Uh, Bobby Cosmic says, I wonder how far away we are from mapping out every object in our solar system, including what's in the Oort cloud. Hmm. 50 years. So, uh, I mean, It's always going to depend a lot on what it actually is being mapped. Like, are you talking very tiny dots? Right now, we can't really map anything that's in the general direction of the Earth-Sun L3 point. That's one on the other side of the sun because the sun's in the way, and we really have basically nothing that looks there. Um, you know, we occasionally send probes out there if we turn them around away from the mission they're doing, could theoretically take a peek there. Um, we don't have any way to detect anything golf ball sized, you know, outside of our own orbit, for instance, right now. But that changes as you put more detectors up and put more money into it. And I would say it's not really a we need new science thing, it's more one of those you have to build the infrastructure. You have to be willing to devote the money and infrastructure to detect those things. And I think that you would reach a point where people said, I do not need to detect anything smaller than a Buick. And uh, that becomes your economic threshold where taxpayers say, look, we don't need a detector grid against that chance a golf ball hits Earth or a golf ball hits a space station with some asteroid miners are at. Uh, we'll just have insurance. Uh, and, and that's that's the base of living in that society because um, it wouldn't be a very common incident. So I would say if you mean things that are the size of mountains, absolutely in the next 50 years, even out to, I don't know if I go quite as far as say the Oort cloud, but yeah, I'll pass the Kuiper belt. Uh, things beneath that, that's just is economically viable, politically required to do it. So if your enemy has something that's the size of a basketball that could ruin your space stations, you build detectors able to see that basketball. All right, Christian Carello has a super chat. Which would be more efficient or faster for a spacecraft? An Orion drive that uses antimatter bombs or a straight-up antimatter drive? Um, it depends on what we mean by efficient. If it's antimatter catalyzed <laughs> fusion, 
um, then probably that because that's going to be a lot cheaper uh, with in terms of using way less antimatter. If I have a hypothetical store of just antimatter, right? Um, what I'm actually going to do is put a solid collector on the front of the thing and store my huge chunk of antimatter like it was rocket fuel, and I will suck particles in as they come by and ran them into antimatter and use that as my propellant uh, right behind the ship as an antimatter Orion drive being fueled by that collected space uh, particles that we're grabbing through. And so you get twice your bang for your buck. And something like that could do about should be able to do 90% of light speed or a little bit better. Um, as to just a antimatter bomb going out behind the thing, kind of the same zone, it's just not going to be quite as good as you can get half your fuel or mass energy from stuff you're passing on along the way. Um, it's definitely going to do better than the regular nuclear bomb, though, even fusion devices, because, again, even antimatter-catalyzed fusion or fusion bombs are just way more efficient and compact. You don't have as much equipment being needed to set the bomb off. Don't forget your sunscreen says, what do you think the chance is that an inhabited alien planet would support multiple related intelligent species like us and Neanderthals? Um... If we're talking specifically like us and Neanderthals, it's entirely possible you could have several of them on the same planet at the same time because they're very closely related. Um, it depends on how that planet's geography is set up. Um, if you're assuming they have ice bridges that popped up for like a million year span and then they all got separated about the same time they discovered fire, right, which we say we was like a million years ago, you have very divergent, um, very divergent species by then, uh, even compared to us and Neanderthals who are probably relatives, uh, and that's just a question of did that plant's geography and, and, ge and geology support that much separation? And if you imagine, say, I don't know, five continents that are uh, connected to one or another through bridges either on the north or south side of the thing uh, by that pole, then yeah, you could have, say, five different species on each of those who are more no closer related than us to the Anathos or more. Brian Abayer has a question going back to your underwater settlements video. Would underwater settlements help accelerate humans to fully accomplish type 1 civilizations? Um, I don't know if I'd say underwater settlements would help that too much. Uh, we were talking about them in Fortress Wars where you protect yourself uh, by living underwater. Um, I would say probably not really particularly advantageous in terms of becoming more K1. Because, again, it's about energy access, and there's not that much water uh, energy deep down. There's some geothermal energy. But totally on the surface, right where the ocean's at the surface there, you have access to all that sun energy, which is like three-quarters of the sun energy hitting the planet. So floating rafts or solar panels on top of the ocean, yes. Um, underwater ones, not so much. Sonabello, is chatbot testing essentially robo-psychology? Um, hmm. You mean in the sense of... Susan Calvin. Uh, so the old Isaac Asimov robot books that got us all the robotic laws um, featured a character called Susan Calvin. She was the robo-psychologist for U.S. robots, the uh, guys who had all the patents on robot technology. And she would go and figure out what was going on with the robots thinking when they seemed to be breaking those laws or malfunctioning. And she was the first and, and uh, only good robo-psychologist. Um, fascinating character, by the way. I, I recommend those stories. They've still held up pretty well as long as you don't they talk about vacuum tubes and positronic brains. Um, are we basically doing robo-psychology when we do these interactions with chat, GPT, or vice versa? I'd say so. I mean, my own experiences with the chat GPT, even even with 4, because I did grab a, a 
thinking for that just recently, is that it's good for coming up with episode prompt ideas. Like I'll say, list me 50 things about the moon people care about, and it'll give me a big long list. It's been a nicer format than Google. And sometimes I'll try to figure out, what do I want to do about the moon? I'll say, well, I know what I want to do for the main episode, but I'd like some subtopics I might want to like brainstorm. And I could Google those and see what people come up with on the moon, or I could ask them at ChatGPT and tell me, you know, here's 10 things that we've co- you know, collated as people being interested in. Um, it's not a conversation, though. And um, I, know, you know, I don't really know how much better that would get in terms of something like psychology, but do you need to have a conversation with your psychologist to detect if it's uh, going crazy, uh, if you're going crazy? Because it might be that a robot chat GPT might be very good at uh, detecting these things from you, even though you're not having a conversation with it, you just feel like you are. On the flip side of that, if we are actually doing psychology on potential robots, again, there's nothing there to, to do it. Chat GPT has no personality, it's not alive, it's not conscious. Maybe 10, 15 years from now it would be, but right now it's just a more language-based form of Google, basically. And we are at our break, but I would hope that we'll get a few more questions in the chat for the second half. So drop them in, get your drink and your snack, and we'll see you shortly. See you soon. So while we're on break, it's a good time to get more questions in the moderators for part two. I got asked about the Pancosmorio theory last livestream and could not give an answer as I wasn't sure what it was but it sounded familiar and I had seen it before and dismissed it and never dug into it till now. It is pretty new and there is more there than I first gave it credit for, and I'm a bit on the fence on if I should make an episode out of it, and probably will. But the 4 minute summary is that it is proposing that space settlement is highly constrained by ecosystem and points to the high improbability of finding a planet or other body where our existing ecosystem could be decently replicated, and that space settlement like domes or stations are too small for a true ecosystem. The channel regulars can guess why I shrug that off, if you need more space for an ecosystem, build bigger. And I never assume any small ecosystem needs to be complete to Earth levels or to be stable for more than a spaceship's flight time, and I tend to assume you just keep building bigger till you hit that threshold. Now I should emphasize that the paper, which I'll link in the episode description, is more focused on discussing the thermodynamics of ecosystems and defining levels of sustainability in ecosystems, but that a lot of the online discussion of it is more in a Fermi Paradox context and that's where I foresaw it. It's a great paper but the part I particularly liked were the levels of sustainability and discussing what they meant for the settlement's stability and crisis resistance, and if you remember the expanse where they are on Ganymede and Calamities, varying from books to TV, caused the minimal and artificial ecosystem to collapse, then that is in this vein. Level 1 is our classic space opera planet where there's some differences with Earth but gravity and sunlight and other factors permit a stable ecosystem that needs no further inputs after initial settlement to stay around for millions if not billions of years. I would personally guess there's fewer than a billion plants like that in the galaxy, maybe even tens of millions, as we don't really know how narrow the eye of the habitable needle is that we need to thread. But we have options like immense solar mirrors and shades and megadomes for helping to widen that needle. Level 2 is more of the category we think of for space settlement on this channel, where some degree of alteration, genetic or cybernetic, to the people and some organisms would be needed for a completely stable ecosystem or you would need some supply chain to keep it going, and this is a potentially brittle ecosystem as you are constantly bringing in outside resources, which represents a supply chain that accident or warfare could disrupt and same for some large piece of eco-engineering hardware like a single huge solar shade at L1 for Venus. 
Level 3 goes further, in that there's not enough room or energy in the system to avoid cascade failures, and I'd use the example of an asteroid mining base far from the Sun, using a parabolic dish to focus light and for heat, photosynthetic light, and energy. If something smashes that dish, then they could freeze to death before they might repair it. Level 4 is something like the existing International Space Station that must have a strong umbilical cord to Earth just to survive temporarily, and which has no plausible scenario for independent existence, and this would apply to most Moon and Mars-based designs as well as a place like McMurdo Station in Antarctica. Now again, there is a lot more discussion of cascade failure and power sources, and growth, blight, diversity loss, and cascade failure hypotheses, and probably enough for a good episode on the topic. It's interesting context of Fermi Paradox discussions like the Aurora Effect, but as I feel we often demonstrate on the show, certain technologies make Level 1, 2, and 3 ecosystems possible in virtually every condition and offer extreme options for redundancy. If you are on a distant asteroid ten times further from the Sun than Earth, then having several thousand small parabolic dishes concentrating light for you, and many packed up awaiting deployment if needed, and a nuclear reactor, fission or fusion, whatever you've got, gives you power redundancy. And as long as you have that, a good library of knowledge and tech specs, and some decent automation and 3D printing, probably including DNA printing from an archive of organisms, then you likely can keep your level 2 and 3 ecosystems from undergoing cascade failure. The takeaway would be that you are militarily and diplomatically vulnerable to anyone in position to stress those factors, especially if they are more robust to them than you are. So a great topic and a good question from last month, and now let's get back to more of your questions from this month. And we're back. So do we have any more questions coming in during the, uh, the break? Yes, and we have a few from before that trying to get to here as well. We have Valdarg. If primitive life is confirmed to live under Europa's icy shell, should we rush into examining it or ease into it and not give it shock? Uh, well, it will have been sitting there for I have no idea how long safely underneath the ice, so we probably don't need to rush in to do anything. We can take our time. Once you know it's there, it's not like it... It is honestly very unlikely any primitive alien life or even complex alien life that we would find that doesn't actually have technology to share with us because it's advanced is going to make any massive breakthroughs in our knowledge right away. It's It will come as a knock-on effect, but it's not one of those things you have to really race out to. Like, we must right now dissect this alien species to find out what tasty secrets it has inside that improves our lives. Um, but, you know taking it easy and careful on the way in to make sure you have lots of samples before you accidentally wreck the biosystem or, you know, invade it with something or um, kill everything. It's usually a good idea because, <laughs> to be honest, and we have this come up at the top of quarantine planets, once you start poking in there, you're going to start doing permanent long-term change. We call it change as opposed to damage, but it's not going to stay the same. Terrell says, I just wanted to say that you're the best. I've been listening for years, and your videos are like educational meditation. Awesome. I like that description of that. So. <laughs> and our fan Albert Jackinson says, Hi, Isaac. It's good to be here. I'm having eye surgery soon, and with a focus on AI right now in the medical applications, where do you expect the convergence between those two to go in the next few decades? Mm. Kind of that same thing. Diagnostic is one of the big ones for what you would do is... Um, you've got scans on MRI where no doctor could ever spot all the stuff as fast as the AI can, and it picks up little cancers or tumors that the doctors would miss. 
Same thing here on something like an eye that's so sensitive it can detect little damage or distortion that we really cannot. You know, it's and good luck by the way on that surgery. I hope it you know works for you very well, Albert. Um, one of my longest running fans. <laughs> Synod well, says, yes. what um, are the challenges and risks of using a plane of reflective material at the L1 Lagrange point to reduce the amount of sun that the Earth receives? Um, challenges is just trying to find a way to get that material off the moon and manufacture it out there. That's that's probably the best place to do it. Um, I, I know I've, I've referenced blowing up an asteroid there, like detonating a near-Earth asteroid there as a stopgap measure, but that would not really be the best approach. It's just you could do that. Um, manufactured thin sails sent out there really shouldn't be an issue. You might send out something that looked more like an inflated bubble. Um, just got hoarded shape there easier. I'm not really certain what the best method would be, but you don't really have to worry about repairing them. You just send them out there in clusters in that area, and this is General L1. And as the albedo of it starts to drop, you send in more, and you just keep adding more to it until you decide to clear it all out. Assuming you want to get rid of sun. I, for one, think we lack a lot of sun in our area. We could use a little well, more. Right, and that, that is one of the other options, something like an it. orbital mirror, for instance. Let's say I take an orbital mirror that is currently intercepting light that will be landing on the Sahara Desert, and I tip that up to Scandinavia, uh, which may want some additional sunlight at some times of the year. And it say it scatters ten percent of light off into space again. So you're getting you know a little less light on the Sahara, a little more light on on Norway, and a little less light overall hitting the planet for a lower temperature. Um, or alternatively, you might have another meal that does the exact opposite, just adds to it. You have a lot of options for what you can do there. And, and to me, it's not really a question of you know um, how economical this is right now per se, or is this a wise idea? It's more of like when, when are we going to do this? Not not an if because it just makes too much sense not to put that into play. Because, um, again, you could talk about that stuff accurately enough that would just be warming up your house. You know, so why not? We have an interdimensional question about tentacles and extra limbs. Do you think they could be useful? Um, I'm just going to tell you that if you ever come by a portal into another universe and there's tentacles coming out of it, go, run, away, away, run away. So um, they may be useful. You should find out from a distance. <laughs> um, <laughs> they could be very handy for catching children doing naughty things. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, that makes me think of Rick and Morty. Um, <laughs> but, I, I mean, I don't know what would be more useful in terms of like hands versus tentacles as a species that was developing technology. You can make a case for either one, but uh, if you've seen squids or octopuses in action, they are very dexterous in certain ways. Uh, at the same time, I'll, I'll keep with the hands. I think you always have the option of something like a mechandendrite, which they have in uh, in 40K, where you got the extra arms out behind you, like uh, Dr. Octopus from uh, from Spider-Man. Those could be tentacles, too. But I would say, by and large, um, anything that's interdimensional and tentacular in nature is probably best avoided. We have a super <laughs> chat from Rob Hawk. What is the best sci-fi novel about people living in underground cities? Um, wow. Uh, let's come back to that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a comment that mm -hmm. chatbots will be used for advertising real soon. They will talk to you, pretend they like you, and try to sell you something. Oh, I think they probably already do. That's, that's probably some of the chat right now. We always had robots before, so. That's true. I, they like to stick around. There, there's the underground folks. I can't remember their names off the top of my head from Stargate Atlantis, but that's that's a... TV show, but they did have books out for it. I can't remember what they're called. They're humans. 
uh, they're very paranoid, and they have uh, Chief Miles O'Brien, uh, Cole Meany, as their as their main leader, and that's a very fun group of people. I just can't remember what they're called. I can't think of any other place that has much subterranean living as a major aspect of it, though. Matt Van Grisman, thank you for your super chat. I am 42. Will we live to see Louvor launched before we die? What launched? Louvor, L-U-V-O-I-R. Oh, the, yeah, the ESA one. Um, you know, we had this with James Webb. Um, I'm going to say yes, because we did finally get lodged. And I forgive James Webb for being that delayed because of just how useful it's been now it's up there. But uh, and, and because it really was a, a hard one to thread that needle to get that to where it needed to be and, and uh, to open. But, um, yeah, we will. I think probably, probably, I, but, I, you know, if, you, if you're a smoker, I'd give that up. Uh, anything else that might shorten your lifespan, you know, just if you really want to see, get the data from the forest. I would say I just turned 43, and I would say 42 was an awesome year, and I thought about staying 42 for a few more decades, but then they get complaining about how you're falsifying your ID, and, you know. No, so now I'm 43, and I like it just fine. <laughs> Stephen Sullivan, is this strange universe with Heisenberg and Planck possible to be certain about exceeding the speed of light? Is it possible to be uncertain about exceeding the speed of light? Um, like no, but yes. Uh, it gets kind of tricky at the quantum level. Um, so one thing to keep in mind is is right from the get go, it will say does anything move faster than speed of light? And you've probably heard me in the FTL series say that it's a bad thing to call it. The first thing that moved at that speed we found was light, but what actually moves at that speed, the maximum speed, is, is causality, uh, cause and effect. So things move faster than the speed of light away from us. Almost everything in the universe is moving away from us faster than the speed of light. Uh, that, that's that Hubble expansion rate. You get about 13, 14 billion light years away from us, which is not the edge of the universe. That's It's 46 billion light years away. Uh, once you get past that 13, 14 billion year marker, uh, everything is going faster than the speed of light away from us. Um, but there's no information transmitting between us and them, and that's the key. You cannot send cause and effect or information. Um, and at the quantum scale, you can pretty much circumvent almost any of that anyway. But um, I'm trying to leave a sane way to explain this. Quantum doesn't translate well. <laughs> um, yes, you could locally violate the speed of light, but it would, you wouldn't actually have passed the information. How about that? That's about the best we can really do on that one. <laughs> Um, I think I already I hate asked explaining this. Quantum. Go ahead. You like explaining quantum? <laughs> no, I hate it. Oh, isn't that what we started talking about? Quantum uh Quantum resurrection. Yeah, that was like our, our second happy chat when we were younger. So, no, we were talking about uh brain function, quantum brain function. Yeah, uh, yeah with Orc or Orc O R, which is out on Nebula. Um so yeah, for anyone who was curious, because I saw that one in the chat, uh was uh, with Sarah and I when we met was like love at first force naughty sight and the answer was no. We were casual friends for like five or six years and then we had a really good conversation um with her and my friend Jason Keeler over a game of a choir that uh that led to me doing the episode uh the uh Formula Paradox Solutions episode sorry, Dyson Dilemma episode that was the first season one episode, uh where we just had to talk about expansion out in the universe and then like I don't know, was it a year later what Schroeder's house? We were chatting about uh, the concept of whether or not there was any quantum effects at the at the um, mental level. So, And then after that, we got to be closer friends, but that was like five years in between. <laughs> I, I really want to compliment the mods on doing so well, usually pulling out the uh, questions. When I'm having to scroll through them, I always get to a great question, and then something gets dropped in, and I lose it. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the reasons why it's really good to have the moderators help you out on that. And by the way, thank you. Is it's, 
very hard on the chat windows of these things to actually keep track of them all. It is actually a chat window, for instance, over on my screen just to the side here, but uh, I can't really keep up with it and talk and find the questions and answer yeah, them. Yeah, it keeps bouncing around. I think I asked this one, and uh, let's see, I don't think I had this one yet. Mm -hmm. The Shimaro, is it possible to build something like the Epstein drive from the Expanse? Mm -hmm. um, so as best as I can tell, and I know there's some the science of the Epstein type things, but as best I can tell from description, the Epstein drive and from function is a fusion torch drive, uh, which is kind of like the ones that um, loosely Robert Heinlein had discussed a bit. And the idea be there, you have a set amount of fuel and you're basically getting a ridiculously high rate of fusion uh, out the back of it. And that allows you to actually pull off an acceleration rate of 1G the whole time. Uh, it's possible, it absolutely is possible, but we got to keep in mind when we're talking about fusion is you're needing the energies involved not just in the core of a sun to make it happen, but the core of a super dense sun about to go supernova. That's the kind of rate of fusion you need for that to be useful. If I take one ton, one physical ton of solar matter, I can run a light bulb off it in terms of how much energy it's producing. New energy, it's very hot, so it has lots to give off. Um, inside really powerful giant stars where it's fusing a thousand times faster, it starts to match a normal um, power generator, like a gas engine. Uh, to get the kind of things you need for spaceships, that's what you need to be having the kind of stellar densities that we had, that we have in the course of supernovae, or like we had in the first couple minutes after the Big Bang. So you really need something very intense to do that, and that's, I think, what people tend to miss about that. But that's what you have the fusion torch drive. And if you have something like that, you can't have that anywhere near any material. This has got to be completely magnetically shoved out. And that's where you get back those radiators on spaceship from the excess energy hitting you. But realistically, I don't think we'd ever see something like that, but it is physically possible, yes. And I think, to quote Alistair Reynolds again, the spaceship drive they have in the Revelation Space series he's best known for do run by sending a wormhole back in time to an alternate universe, I believe, to avoid causality errors to that first minute of the, of the, uh, right after the Big Bang. So that's a good option for a spaceship drive. <laughs> Arc and Light. Hey, Isaac, big fan and longtime listener. Here's back from the days before you upgraded your mic. Ha, 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 ha. I was wondering what nation or group you have money on putting boots on Mars first. Um, U.S. or SpaceX, although I would actually guess when one of those things gets well planned that it will be some kind of joint mission that NASA was putting up most of the money for, uh, maybe paying SpaceX to do, and that ES, well, ESA and JAXA were both actually putting a bunch of money into as well. It kind of depends on the political situation at the time, whether or not folks like China or Russia or India would want to join in or something like that, but... Nothing like that's going to happen overnight. It's going to take a lot longer to put a mission like that together than did for Apollo. And I just can't see any of the other countries that have space programs not wanting to be symbolically involved. And uh, that just makes them more the merrier. So my guess is that would probably would be an international effort. Uh, but probably a lot like the space station is nowadays where you have a few principal parties that do most of the heavy lifting. Dexter says, on the subject of cosmic radiation protection, could we use the concept behind meteorite protection, two layers separated by distance with radiation-resistant materials and cosmic rays? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues you have with um, radiation shielding is that some types of radiation shielding will actually take things that are radioactive that will pass right through us normally without causing damage and um, catch them and, and turn them into a more lethal form of radiation. So <laughs> the bullet which will pass through you. And it's kind of an example... 
a lot of bullets, um, you think, well, a faster bullet, like a needle bullet you'll see in sci-fi, they got little tiny bullets. Those wouldn't hurt you at all. You could machine gun somebody with things the size of a needle that will move you at hypersonic speed all day long, and, well, not all day long, but you could hit them repeatedly and it wouldn't do any serious damage just because there's a bunch of hole that tiny into them. Um, but if it breaks or fragments, then something becomes a huge problem if it does it inside you. And that kind of happens with some of the radiation protection that causes some radiation that would just go right through you and ignore you to break up and damage stuff more. Mm. Um, so you need multi-layer approaches. What's that? You followed up on that. First layer redirects the ready a bit and the second layer absorbs question. Yeah, and that's generally the way you'd want to do that would be to have that. You'd have multiple layers, and I don't think it would even be one or two layers. You might have a powerful magnet around the ship that helps deflect a lot of the ones that are ionized away. Uh, and then you have anything you could possibly reflect or deflect or redirect with, then absorb, and then another layer beyond that to absorb the most likely byproducts that might come off too. And by general default, it's going to be doing most of your lifting with water or hydrogen. Hydrogen's a great absorber, so is water for the same reason, and you need to have them because hydrogen's usually going to be your fuel, right? And if it isn't, it's going to be water. And you have that along with you, your excess water supply, so you put that in the hull of the ship. And um, that way, when you start venting, because you have multiple wavelength layers, you don't lose anything all that valuable, and it's doing that job for you since you really can't irradiate water in any meaningful sense. What do you think about harvesting geothermal vent energy or underwater underwater volcanoes? Um, yeah, we talked about that in the episode accessing the Earth's core, which core. Sorry, we're still working on those O's right now. Um, was it like five years ago already, maybe four? It was the last one of our Earth 2.0 series. And you can do it. Um, geothermal is never going to give you huge amounts of power compared to the sun, but there's enough power already on the planet that you really just want to decide where you're getting it from to fuel things. And geothermal is a good approach to doing it in a lot of cases, uh, especially because it's just moving heat around, and so it's great for heating and cooling purposes specifically. Um, but would you use something like a very active hot geothermal source event? And I think maybe it, it, it just depends on how accessible it actually is to tap. I think in a lot of cases you'd have more infrastructure for it. And this is a key thing to remember about power generation. It's not about how readily available the fuel is. It's more about how easy is the machinery to maintain and pay for per watt. So, for instance, we say, well, soon we'll have electricity so cheap that it'll be pennies you know, per kilowatt hour. I know the original expression is too cheap to be metered because it would still be really expensive to maintain the electric infrastructure, all those wires, right? That's a lot of the cost, and that's not going anywhere. Um, but you no longer care how much energy you're putting through them anymore because it's too cheap to produce. Except that fusion reactor has material that's made out of. That you know geothermal vent access has material that's made out of that has to access, use, be repaired, etc., which is deep underwater, in seawater, and next to something molten. And that's probably going to do horrible things to its lifetime similar to putting next to a powerful gamma ray source, for instance. Patrick Whittings, Wrightson, excuse me, Patrick Wrightson, thank you for your super chat. Mm -hmm. Thank you for everything you do. My wife and I love your work very much. Wanted to ask if you're familiar with Peter F. Hamilton's Commonwealth Universe, and oh, if yes. so, what your thoughts are on the possibility of bionics. Okay, so, um, uh, it's a great series. I think Peter Hamilton is probably better known for his uh, Neutronium Alchemist work, but I thought the Commonwealth Saga was probably my favorite one. I'm trying to remember what the one character is. Uh, he starts out as kind of more of a secondary one. He's the father of one of the female protagonists that uh, we first meet, but I can't remember his name right now. 
Um, but great series. If you haven't read it or listened to it on audiobook, particularly it's narrated by John Lee, who is my favorite audiobook narrator. Um, definitely worth the time. I think Judas Unchained and Pandora's Star, in the opposite order, because Pandora's Star is the first one, just great books. The Voyage series afterwards, also pretty good. Um, but in terms of the Bionics, they have their, their, they have the ability to, um, de-age people. I think you get treated in a, usually a therapy in a tank or something like that for some period of time, and you come out lucky like you're 20. And so everybody does that because it's cheap enough that everybody can do that. Um, quality might vary, but you get to do it, right? Um, and uh, so people go back in, they get rebloomed, and then they need to replace their bionics and things like that because they necessarily survive the process as well. So people have a lot of tattoos, electro tattoos, things like that, little cybernetics or augmentation. And that varies over the course of the series. Um, I don't think that that would be. I'm trying to remember what it specifically was that one of the characters we see, Nigel, I can't remember his full name right now, uh, he has a whole bunch of these basically genetically engineered augmentations instead of cybernetically engineered ones. Basically, some kind of implant or like an improved halt you might get, things like that, that are of a similar nature to cybernetics but still organic. I think there'd definitely be a lot of people who do things like that. So that's always the. Concern there is if you're not going to be comfortable having, say, a bionic eye, are you happy with a genetically engineered eye? And I suspect that you'd have a lot of people who are good with both, and a lot of people who are not happy with either. So. Donnie Prox, is it possible to make a Banks orbital ring with known current technology? Uh, Banks orbital. Um, so the orbital rings we usually discuss, they go around one planet, and um, they don't really have any spin on them that has to do with um, centrifugal force repeat apart. A Banks orbital is, uh, don't quote me on a number like this, I think it's either a million miles or 1.7 million kilometers in radius or diameter. And every every individual planetary gravity and day length has its own unique combination. So there'd be one size that's used for Mars, one for Earth, one for Jupiter, etc. Um, you can produce these things by using active support. Uh, similar to how you do an orbital ring, but basically what you're doing is you're putting another bigger ring on the outside of it that magnetically pushes up against it. So it can spin at whatever rate it needs to to produce gravity at 1g, which is really fast, and instead of being ripped apart by the materials not being able to hold together, because you can't make anything strong enough like that under known physics that's not made of something like magnetic monopoles, it instead is being pushed up from behind or below by a bigger non-rotating ring underneath. We did talk about that, I think, in our uh, Ring Wards episode, which looked at the bigger Ring Wards as well as the Banks Orbital, which is in between that size. And that is allowed in known physics and engineering. Doing it, it'd probably be very, 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 very hard to do, but it is it, it is apparently possible, yeah. Um... <laughs> I wonder what the question is now, so... <laughs> Well, let's see. Here's a question from Subaki. When talking about uplifting animals, how would someone go about doing it? And what would be the reasons that you would give a higher intelligence or also a humanoid body? Last sentence again, please. Would you give them a higher intelligence or also a humanoid okay. body? So we have three basic types of uplifting. And um, for those who remember the poll from last week, we'll be doing an episode on uplifting and whether or not it's ethical. Uh, in early January, I believe, and 
between now and then I have to make a point of talking to David Brin about it. So David Brin is the one who wrote the Uplift Saga, kind of brought the idea of uplifting more into play. Uh, and uh, he's one of those people who's both a really good scientist and a really good sci-fi writer, by the way. And I've, I've had the distinctive pleasure of being able to, to uh, have a friendship with him the last year or so, and he is a just a superb thinker. So I think I probably want to touch base with him a little bit more on that topic before I do that episode. But we have three types of uplifting. You have neurological uplifting, which is where I, I mess with your brain to make you smarter. You have technological uplifting, which is like the stuff you're not allowed to do in Star Trek, where you give some civilization of primitives the, uh, you know, a nuclear bomb, right? Um, and then you have biological uplifting, which would be, oh, sorry, physiological uplifting, which is where I might make a, a dolphin that was already intelligent and give them a hand so they could use technology. Um, those are your three types, and they all have different problems with them in terms of when or why you might want to do them, but any of them could potentially be viable. I, I think I'm on record saying that I don't have any problem with technological uplifting at all. I've never understood why someone's smart enough to have technology when I'm allowed to give it to them. You know, it's, it's very few of us have discovered new science or technology, and no one, not even Einstein, has managed to invent as much technology as the rest of the planet combined has. So you are benefiting from other people's scientific knowledge and endeavor. I'm not sure why someone who comes from a technology, more primitive technology, uh, civilization would somehow not be able to as well but uh that's just my personal views on that i don't agree with star trek on things like that but the others are harder because is it really fair to take a dog and make it smarter and say well now now you're intelligent and if we were talking about rick and morty earlier i think that's the second episode of the show they look in that it's turn out well and then do i have the right to take you and add something to you like a new hand um we were talking about tentacles earlier, and would you like if someone came by and grafted on some tentacles to you so you could more easily use interdimensional portal technology, for instance? I think the answer to that would probably be no. Um, but will we do it? I'm sure we both cats and dogs to some degree. Um, you could argue we're already doing it at a very slow pace, um, just probably by selectively breeding for more intelligent species of them. Um, I know, it's, it's a tricky topic. We'll explore more in that episode. So. <laughs> Unnamed Super Chat, if easily produced room temperature semiconductor was discovered today, how would it affect the space industry? Um, it really does make things like orbital rings or lofstrom loops a lot more appealing to try to work on because right now one of the big problems with them is, is that cost of energy issue. Um, the flip side, of course, you still need a good magnetic shielding uh, technology for that. Mu metal is good but not that great and it's not exactly cheap to make. Um, that's the best magnetic shielding material we have is Mu metal. Um, hmm. I'm not sure what the most obvious application of superconductors to space would be in the short term. Um, magnetic confinement for a fusion reactor, probably. So, uh, it would be very good for rail guns to shoot material back from, say, from the moon to here. But again, there's, there's steps along the way, and I don't know what those would be that you'd most immediately find that useful for. Economic boom, that's what it is. When you get around to it, anything that makes energy cheaper or easier uh, to make, move, or transmit has the advantage of making space easier to do just because the more industry might you got, the more production you've got, the cheaper everything is to do, or the easier everything is to do just by sheer brute force. So. Super chat and comment from Michael Porzio. I love the show. Many thanks. Thank you. And scrolling down here. A couple more. The AI has donated to the channel, I see. Is that so? <laughs> Donnie Prox, 
super chat. Is it possible to move Venus and Mars to the same distance from the sun that the Earth is, assuming you had them evenly spaced out from each other? Um, not just three. Um, so I, sp I don't think you can do a capital rosette with just three. It wouldn't be stable. You would have, no. Uh, you need at least six, I think, to, with a Kempler rosette. So if you have an orbital path, uh, and it helps that they're the same mass, by the way, uh, that's a big circular or close to circular orbital path, if you stick things in there 60 degrees off from each other on a 360-degree circle, you will put them all at each other's Lagrange 4 and 5 points, and that becomes a stable system at that point in time, especially if they are of similar mass, stable for a given value, stable. If you can move things in the first place, you can make the course corrections that are needed to prevent minor drift. Um, a Kempler rosette could potentially have thousands of things in orbit path like that. So one thing you might do instead of moving Venus or Mars there, and you could just move them to better orbital paths for just being warmer without Podobius too much. What you might do instead is say take Jupiter apart and put it inside a whole bunch of hollow shells that you tear from the tops of, and that all those were at roughly Earth's distance from the Sun in a circle. And now you've got a hundred shell worlds that uh, you know, near Earth that we can all live on instead. So. <laughs> All right, I'm going to try a lightning round because unfortunately we are running out of time oh. and we have a few more uh, super chats that I'd like to at least be able to fit in on this episode. Jeff D, thank you for your super chat. Over a year ago, there was an announcement about a neutron star with a solid surface. How is that possible and how can they determine that? Um, solid is kind of non-specific when you it's something that dense. Remember, a neutron star is as dense as an atomic nuclei, so... Uh, atoms are a thousand times less dense than that and uh, very solid when you push against them. So it's thousands of times denser than a normal matter would be. That's why I talk about neutronium armor being cool. And I guess it would just be an implication that it wasn't moving much. There was very little churn on the surface. Audrey Sindorka, I'm sorry, that's probably mispronounced. Thank you for the birthday balloons and the super chat. You're very welcome. Sorry we butchered your name. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Lord Mon, all this physics and sci-fi, do you read or watch any fantasy? Oh, yeah. No, I think I probably do more fantasy than sci-fi, some of yours. Um, my favorite actual writer, writer, period, right now these days is Brandon Sanderson. So, and he does some sci-fi-themed stuff, but mostly fantasy. If you have not read Mistborn uh, or Wheel of Time, is one of my favorites. He finished that series up. I love Wheel of Time. The, the books. I'm not thrilled about the show. Professor Raccoon, thank you for your super chat. Do you think a K3 could use its extra energy to create matter and new star systems to inhabit? Um, yeah, I could definitely condense nebulae into new stars, for instance, or into a fuel spot of fusion reactors or black hole economies. Um, making new matter, yes, they could do it. A K1 could probably do it. It's just run a particle collider or pull a bunch of quarks apart. You know, there are ways to make new matter out of energy. It's tricky, but it's doable. Crossover Maniac, thank you for your super chat. How much is heat radiation or power rate limitation factor in fusion or antimatter propulsion? Doesn't it take a specific power of gigawatts per kilogram to accelerate to even 1G for an interstellar drive? Yeah, it's, it is on order of like a gigawatt for, I don't know if it's kilogram or ton, but it's huge if you want to maintain 1G. Uh, that's a little bit non-specific. So for the rocky types, they're not going to be happy with that number, but that's about what it looks out to be with a laser cell or a photon rocket. Uh, you can do it a lot lower power if you're putting it through other matter instead, like antimatter fusion. Uh, antimatter catalyzed fusion will be getting much better thrust from those hydrogen particles you're hitting. Um, but heat radiation is huge on something like that, and the key is have a very reflective substance so you're not absorbing any of it. 
That's that's the most important part. It's why I like laser thrust because we can make laser beams and things that will reflect off uh, at better than ninety nine point nine nine percent silver mirrors. So that helps a lot if you're trying to keep your heat down. Chat GPT four point two. Thank you for your super chat. Do you think the skyhook infrastructure is the way to go? Um, in the short term, I'd love it if we actually had any good hypersonic space, uh, you know, space planes. Uh, in the long term, I think skyhooks probably clutter the uh, orbital lanes a little bit too much to ever be handy for like a very like a K one civilization. They'd want to switch over to space towers or orbital rings. Short term, right. yes, though. Last question. I'm going to try to not butcher this person's name again. They were kind enough to give a second super chat. Andre Sidrinko. In near-term exploration, what about social and physiological implication? People tend to miss forests, fields, and seas or oceans, or even food could be a deal-breaker for people's mental health. What's your opinion on the topic? Um, so when we were at the ISTC last last year, we, uh, Sarah and I both, we'd met a, a fellow named Logan. Um, and uh, we had a great time chatting about all sorts of things with him. And I asked if him help because he's a psychologist on, on what was the things with space travel that were hard. And he sent me a list of like a hundred known uh, psychological issues that rise on the space station that were entirely normal and not space related alone. And even more that are just like unique to space. And uh, that's why we did an episode of Staying Sane in Space is because it's insane, literally, pardon the pun, how hostile space is to comfortable living, just being in that environment. So there'll be huge problems trying to make that more livable. I think we can do it. It's probably no worse than living on a submarine and people do that. We've had people in space for over a year at a time and they came back sane. But yeah, you need to, especially you're talking about like not using the cream of the crop from you know NASA's astronaut pool when you talk about raising families. Yes, you need to have that looked into in depth and you need to be ready for really pouring resources into handling it because it's not going to turn out to be a super easy issue, I don't think. Maya Skill, thank you for putting the questions in the prompt. I just now, <laughs> it just now downloaded all of them for me. Ah. It had been blocking them out. <laughs> <laughs> so, more technical problems we always have. Is there any more questions that don't have? That, that, I think, wraps us up for today. Thank you. Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be here again next week for our next live stream. But in the meantime, next week, next month. Sorry, next month for live stream. This upcoming week, though, we have our usual episode coming out on Thursday, which I cannot remember what that is. But it'll be a good one. Oh, it's have spacesuit will travel. It's our Heinland one. So um, it's uh, that's actually going to be a fun one. There's a lot of narrative in that one. So join us then for have spacesuit will travel on Thursday and find out all about the wonders of trying to be a lone traveler going through the galaxy. Until next time, and we'll see you then. Have a great Thank you for joining us for another monthly live stream. If we missed any of your questions, feel free to put them in the comments on the episode, and we'll see you on Thursday, but if you don't want to wait, you can check out any of this month's recent episodes, or see our bonus content over on Nebula at go.nebula.tv slash Isaac As always, Thanks for watching and have a great week.